At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today marks the beginning of Women's History Month, and we have features celebrating women past and present. We'll hear about the impact of female entrepreneurs from the 1700s on Atlanta's thriving culinary scene today, from Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. They'll also tell us about women-owned restaurants you may want to check out this month. Plus, our series highlighting local comedians, speaking of comedy, today features Angel Contreras first. In her previous children's book, Stacey Abrams conveyed the joy of words for a little girl who overcomes her shyness to compete in a spelling bee. That endearing character returns to share her joy of reading now in Stacey's remarkable books, the author joins me now via Zoom to discuss the new book. Stacy Abrams, I am delighted to welcome you back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It is always a pleasure to be here. This story is a child's love letter to books. When we meet little Stacy at the beginning of the book... Why is reading her favorite activity during recess? Because recess is hard. Recess means you have to play with kids who may or may not want you to join. You have to risk being rejected and you have to be good at the sport. Reading simply requires that you open your mind and open your eyes and let your imagination take you where you want to be. And for Stacy, the algorithm says that reading is a safer choice. Hmm. What happens when Julie, a little girl in her class, approaches Stacy at recess? Well, Stacy carries her lessons with her, and she realizes that this is someone who needs help. And she has a skill that she can leverage, that she can be kind, and she can be helpful, and she can share her favorite activity with Julie. Uh, it it upsets her that someone doesn't get to have as much fun reading. 
And it is a mission for her to make certain that Julie gets to enjoy the world around her through books the way that Stacy does. Later in this story, Julie in turn helps Stacy overcome some of her shyness. How does Julie persuade Stacy to engage in games during recess? Well, Julie, having spent this time with Stacy and as they go through their books, but also building their relationship with one another and their relationships with other kids, reminds Stacy that learning is a two way street. And that while Stacy may have started out being nice to Julie, she has things to learn as well. And there's shyness, there's the issue of confidence, and there's the willingness to try something and not be good at it. And while she experienced that with the spelling bee, it's quite another to do it surrounded by kids (laughs) that you want to play with. And Julie reminds her that the same way practice made perfect with reading, practice makes perfect with playing and getting to know other kids. I noticed in the dedication, you mentioned Julie. This this was a real person in your life, correct? Absolutely. Julie Doe and I met in second grade. After the Vietnam War, a number of Vietnamese refugees were resettled across the United States, including in Gulfport, Mississippi, where I grew up. And so Julie and I met. Uh, She actually reached out to me in 2010. She sent me this lovely email uh, that reconnected us. And she told me about the fact that she's now a teacher with children who have learning disabilities and learning differences in Hawaii. But it was one of the greatest joys of my life to get reconnected to someone who meant so much to me as a kid. Mm. Adventure Day was Stacy's special name for Thursday when her entire class would visit the library. I know your mom was a librarian, and in your first children's book, Stacy's Extraordinary Words, there's a picture of you, I think with your brother, if I remember, doing homework in the library stacks. Is the character of Mr. McCormick, the school librarian in this story, based on a real-life person like that of your second-grade teacher in the previous book? It's a combination. It's an homage to my mother, who was a college librarian, but specialized in children's literature. She was a reference librarian, but made certain that we got to experience all of the richness of children's literature especially books that most kids never had a chance to see because they were from other nations or they were they simply weren't going to show up in the traditional libraries. Uh, but it was also to pay tribute to the, the librarian at Anniston Avenue Elementary, but to librarians that I've met for the last you know, 20 years who are incredibly thoughtful people who want children to have access to the boundless opportunities that are embedded in books. And so while Mr. McCormick is not actually (laughs) the name of the person who was librarian uh, when I was growing up, it is indeed a tribute to my mom and to all the extraordinary librarians who open the world to Mm. kids everywhere. Once again, Kit Thomas has illustrated this children's book of yours. How do their pictures 
enhance the message you want to convey to young readers? Kit has such a vibrant way of conveying not simply the images, but the ethos behind them. And what they do so exceptionally well is take a moment of writing and splash it across the page with color and movement and dynamism. I admire Kit and their capacity to take these words that I write and immediately translate it into this visual world of excitement is a gift. And I, I'm grateful each time I get to work with them. The illustrations and the story are one, truly. Well, it's a lot of fun because I, I've learned from other writers who do picture books. They have this back and forth and there's often a tension or a debate trying to make certain that the images reflect the writer's intent. I have been privileged to have a seamless experience. I write the book, I get it to Kit, and with very few edits, Kit delivers exactly what was in my head, only much better. Oh, <laughs> a true team effort. I need to make the hair a little, a little puffier, but other than that, it's spot on. Love it. <laughs> By the end of this story, we see that Stacy has befriended children from other cultures and their, their worlds open up to her as she brings them into her own. What are you inviting children to discover through reading? In this moment in our politics, there is a debate about who we are. But for children, there is no conversation. It's simply a lived experience. I grew up in a community that was often seen as binary, black or white, and Julie's inclusion changed my understanding at a very young age. What I wanted to do through this story and through the, the differences and the children that they connect with is to use language and ethnicity as a through line for the universality of our experiences. That whether it's Jenny who is Latino or Sam who is Korean, that the excitement and the energy of reading is a transcendent experience. That being a second grader stays with you. That the differences that sometimes can be frightening to adults for children are often a gateway to the very learning we want them to have, which is that they need to, they, they must navigate spaces and experiences that are not their own and that it can be an exciting and energizing and grounding experience. And so for me, that this isn't intended to be a, a, you know, a sermon as much as it is a rumination of how important it was for who I am today that I knew Julie back in 1977, 1978, and that those conversations are actually, I'm, I'm, I'm a little younger than I realized, 1980, <laughs> but that, that those experiences shape who we are and that it is to the benefit of not only our children, but our society to encourage the, the diversity of language, the diversity of ideas, the diversity of 
engagement that children will naturally seek out if we allow them to. Recently, I read a wonderful book called Why the Museum Matters by Daniel Weiss. He's the CEO of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And he makes this powerful statement that museums matter not only because we learn about other cultures, but in so doing, we learn about ourselves. And he makes the point that the American museum is strong because of the role it provides the community as a public institution. I have long believed that libraries represent democracy at its best. As a political leader, one who has spent her entire career working as a voting rights activist, trying to bring people together, would you comment on the library as a metaphor for democracy? Absolutely. So let's set aside my big D Democrat you know, affiliation. Yes, I'm a member of the Democratic Party. But at my core and in my heart, I am a small d democracy advocate. Democracy is about creating space for difference, that it's embedded in the nature of democracy. You wouldn't need to debate. You wouldn't need to vote. You wouldn't need to challenge if everyone already agreed. The notion of democracy is that you are trying to convene difference to create commonality and to create harmony. And that's exactly what a library does. A library by by its nature brings together not only diverse ideas, but divergent ideas, conflicting ideas, diametrically opposed notions of what should be. And it invites everyone in to explore not only what they know and believe they know, but it challenges them to engage ideas and cultures and communities that are not their own and that they may be afraid of or angry at. Democracy is emblematic of what it means to try to knit together difference in a way that does not dilute those differences, but harmonizes them. And libraries do that exquisitely well, both in their content, but also in their situational reality. You you see libraries sitting on the corner of neighborhoods, often bridging between very different people who will walk in and out of the doors. The most exceptional libraries try to bring together communities of difference, but they also provide access. And I think that's the other piece that we lose sometimes in our debate about democracy. It's not only about what we get, it's about what we can give. And libraries are at their core about giving others opportunity, giving others access, giving voice to those who believe they must be silent, giving life to ideas that we think are long dead or that have simply been forgotten. And in that space, libraries every single day are incubators and cauldrons of democracy that I love to celebrate, especially when I get to go inside myself. The inimitable Stacey Abrams. Her new children's book, Stacey's Remarkable Books, 
is available now, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, food contributors Akila McConnell and Chef Asada Reed chronicle female restaurant entrepreneurship in this month's edition of Atlanta's Savory Stories. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. In WABE series, Atlanta's Savory Stories, food historian Akila McConnell and chef Asada Reed bring us stories and recommendations from Atlanta's diverse culinary landscape. To mark the first day of Women's History Month, Reed and McConnell explored the impact of female entrepreneurs from the 1700s on Atlanta's thriving culinary scene today. Plus, we hear about women-owned restaurants you may want to check out this month. In 2023, it is hard to think about restaurants and restaurateurs in Atlanta without talking about the city's incredible incredible women. But 100 years ago, it was a very different situation for female entrepreneurs who wanted to make money with their culinary expertise. And today, I am so excited. We are going to be delving deeper into the story of female food entrepreneurship in the city we all love. Yes, women, food, and Atlanta. This is going to be good. So for those of you who have listened to us in the past, you know that Asad and I, we always start by backing it way up. Uh, but before we do so, I want to just talk a little bit about the work of modern culinary historians. So one of the really tricky parts about the work I do in uncovering Atlanta's food history is that I have to be skeptical of everything I read that was written about the past. What do you mean? Like what? Yeah, like so no, great question. So, um, so for example, you know, when I look at what is considered the essential book on Atlanta's history, uh, which is Franklin Garrett's masterpiece known as Atlanta and its environs, 
Uh, Franklin Garrett did provide the name of the first restaurant in the village of Terminus, which became Atlanta. Now, Garrett said that the first restaurant in the city was owned by a Frenchman named Tony McQuino, who served ham, eggs, and oysters. But when I started digging into it, I realized that Franklin Garrett missed a whole lot of Atlanta history in making this statement because he particularly missed the history of female food entrepreneurship. You know, Akela, I'm not surprised to hear that. My gut tells me that women had been making a living cooking up vittles long before we officially were credited for doing so. I know back in the day, I would have been known to jump in these pots and pans for a rent party or two. So it makes total sense that a resourceful woman with kitchen skills would find her livelihood through food sales. Yeah, and that's been happening for so long, Asada. You know, let's actually back it up way back to the 1700s. This is before there was an Atlanta. In fact, Georgia had just been named a British colony, but the Muskogee population who lived here and had lived here for tens of thousands of years, they included many powerful leaders and entrepreneurs. Um, I, I don't know if you know this, Asada, but the Muskogee population actually was a matrilineal society, meaning that children were, were considered part of their mother's family rather than their father's, and women owned property and worked in trade for a very long time. Now, Muskogee women actually did the bulk of the agricultural work, and because of that, they traded with the British and American colonists as they arrived in the land that came to be known as Georgia. Now, one of the most famous of these indigenous traders is Mary Musgrove. Mary Musgrove. That name rings a bell. Uh, tell us more. Let me see if I can figure out this history. Okay, so you've probably heard about Mary Musgrove because she is considered one of Georgia's founding settlers. Uh, she was actually a mixed race woman. She was the daughter of a Muscogee Creek woman who had married an English trader. She lived in the colony of Georgia in the early 1700s. And Musgrove was very unique in that time period because she spoke both Muscogee and English. And so she was able to act as an intermediary between those two communities. Now, in 1717, she and her husband established a trading post where she allowed trade between the Muscogees and the British. Now, remember what I just said, that the Creek culture was matrilineal. So that meant that the trading post was Mary's. It was not her husband because this was all Muscogee territory at the time. And in the 1730s, Mary Musgrove owned the largest acreage in the entire colony of Georgia. And she actually served as a benefactor for the colonists, serving them meat, bread, and liquor from her trading post. Um, you know, her trading posts were, she actually had a couple, one down near Macon, one down near Savannah, but there were many other unnamed indigenous women who owned trading posts near the land that came to be known as Atlanta. So now that you're telling me this, I, I remember Mary Musgrove from a trip to Savannah and learning about her and even her interactions with, I believe it was James Oglethorpe. That's right. And yeah. what happened after Georgia became an official colony? Oh, great question. So by the early 1800s, roads and villages were built by the American colonists 
through the state of Georgia, including roads near the small village of Terminus, which came to be known as the city of Atlanta. Now remember, Franklin Garrett, Atlanta's official historian, said that the first restaurant was owned by a Frenchman. But as I dug deeper, I discovered that in fact, Prior to there even being a village of Terminus, an old woman and her daughter sold root beer and cakes to passersby on the road. Likewise, a man named Bill Durham peddled ginger cakes that his mother baked in her log house on Broad Street and Mitchell Street. Now, of course, the way things are, Bill Durham's name was retained, but his mother's is gone. And side note, as a culinary historian, one of the other things that can get really frustrating is often when people are talking about historic women, they'll say, Mrs. So-and-so. And so it's very difficult for me to know what their first names are. So as I research these early stories of Atlanta, you know, I find that Many of these names of these first female entrepreneurs are rarely recorded, but it shows that women have always used their prowess in cooking to make a living for their families well before historians began recording these establishments as restaurants. And this is why I say I had to be really skeptical as a culinary historian, because very often historians have minimized the work of women in providing food for their families and their communities. Yeah, it's like that old saying, a woman's place is in the kitchen, and that's considered a derogatory phrase. But as a chef, I have to wonder why. Why would people demean women who cook? Absolutely. Um, Asada, by the way, I think I've told you in the past, my grandmother, one of the most brilliant cooks I have ever met in my entire life. And she was not considered a highly educated woman, but she could outcook the whole neighborhood and more. <laughs> and it is funny. We do say that uh, for centuries, women have sustained and nourished our people using their wits and intelligence to create establishments that supported their communities. Um, and, you know, I have to tell you, Asta, one of my very favorite examples of this is Myra Miller. Uh, and I want to tell you her story. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Let's, let's hear about Myra Miller. Okay. So when we talk about female cooks in Atlanta, you know, we have to talk about Black women because for over a century, Black women were the cooks. Now, cooking in the 1800s, it was an incredibly difficult task. Imagine you were standing over a huge four-foot fire in a poorly ventilated shed with minimal tools, and you would be cooking every single meal because there wasn't any DoorDash or Uber Eats back then. And right. Top this off with the fact that enslaved women were not allowed to learn reading and writing, meaning that every single recipe they had to make had to be memorized. And that transmission of oral history is a very African tradition. And many of us struggle to this day to get Big Mama's recipes because our grandmothers do not write them down. You have to be in the kitchen with them if you want to learn their masterful ways. So was Myra Miller one of these cooks? 
she absolutely was. And like I said, she's one of my favorites. Um, I talk about her a good bit in my book, A Culinary History of Atlanta, on our Unexpected Atlanta Grant Park Tour. We actually go by her grave in Oakland Cemetery because she is just a rock star. Um, Myra Miller, she was born enslaved in Virginia. She uh, actually somehow or another came to Georgia and she worked as an enslaved cook for a state senator here. Now, six years after the Civil War ended, she must have been in her late 60s, early 70s. She came to Atlanta to use her prodigious cooking talents to open up a bakery. And this bakery soon became Atlanta's favorite wedding cake manufacturing. I mean, Atlanta's aristocracy, they could not get enough of her pastry creations, which uh, actually the Atlanta Constitution called, and I quote, masterpieces of culinary genius. Wow. If cooking back in the day over wood fire was an arduous task, I can't even imagine baking, much less decorating wedding cakes. That is such a temperamental subject. Her skills had to be profound. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, she was basically making these cakes on a huge campfire. Uh, other newspapers reported that the cakes reflected her love of flowers because the most delicate flowers and designs were worked on the icing. And that's another direct quote from newspapers of the time. And this is in a time period where newspapers were not complimentary toward Black women. The fact that they said this about her meant that she must have been truly extraordinarily. Um, she made cakes for families as far away as Macon. Uh, and by the way, wedding cakes at the time were fruit cakes. I, I'm sure, Asada, if you've ever made a fruit cake, you know how temperamental those cakes are. Absolutely. She used to ship them all the way to Macon, and she made wedding cakes for basically the most prominent families across the state. I wish we had pictures of her work. That is such an amazing story. You know, on top of that, she must have just been so smart. Um, as far as I can tell in my research, she never received any support from a spouse or any other family members. She took care of her entire family with her bakery business. And she actually used the money that she made in the bakery to send her daughter to Oberlin College, which was one of the premier colleges for Black people at the time. Now, Myra Miller's daughter came back to Atlanta after receiving her undergraduate degree and became one of Atlanta's first Black teachers at the city's first Black elementary school. So think about how much this one woman influenced the education of this community and the city of Atlanta with her skills as a cook. Um, so upon her death, the Atlanta Constitution reported that, and I quote again, perhaps no Black woman in Atlanta received more honors in these last rites. And if you go into Oakland Cemetery, you can see the tall and beautiful obelisk that crowns her grave which she purchased herself with her work at the bakery. Wow. I think I'll go to Oakland for a visit. As a culinarian, that really touches my heart. I think this story also goes to show that Atlanta's female entrepreneurs in the past and today demonstrate a commitment to our community. And this is something we've talked about in past podcasts, that Atlanta's food history demonstrates a commitment to service, 
And we continue to see that today in the stories of modern food entrepreneurs who believe that their work can empower women and our community. Uh, there are so many great examples, Asada. I cannot wait to hear who you're going to talk about. Well, I'm a member of an organization that's based on women in the culinary and hospitality fields. And one of our major fundraising goals is for scholarships and grants for women who wish to enter or further develop in those industries. And that organization is called Les Dames de Scoffier. Um, prior to the pandemic, we threw a fundraiser called Afternoon in the Country, which in my opinion is the best food tasting event in or around Atlanta. I want you to imagine escaping the bustle of the city for a quick jaunt out to the country. And after driving down gravel roads, you follow the footpaths through lush green fields to a cluster of huge white tents. Music is playing. And as you approach, the tantalizing scent of food just pulls you in. Beneath those shady tents are tables upon tables of beautiful, delectable bites prepared by the best chefs in and around Atlanta. Wine, champagne, bourbon, and beer are poured by local and regional craftspeople. Meats, cheeses, preserves, and other handmade goods are displayed by local artisans and all for the tasting. The vibe is comfortable with ample seating, lots of hospitality and recycling. And as far as fundraisers go, Afternoon in the Country falls under here, take my money. <laughs> have you been to one, Akila? I have not, but I think I have to. This has got to be on my to-do list for this year. Absolutely. Um, thanks to that event, La Dame's Discoffier has awarded over half a million dollars to women and girls in pursuit of culinary and hospitality education here in Georgia. Talk about making a lasting impact on the Atlanta community. And it really reminds me that women lift other women up um, in Atlanta's history as well. And of course, you know, one of the most famous stories of a woman-owned uh, business and a woman-owned restaurant is Mary Max Tea Room. Uh, have you been to Mary Max, Asada? Yes, they're famous for their fried chicken. Yeah, fried chicken and those collard greens. Now, Mary Max, back in the early 1900s, women were not permitted to own restaurants in Atlanta, but they were allowed to own tea rooms. At the same time, even up until the 1970s, banks would not provide single women with funding, loans, or with credit to set up their own businesses. So when Margaret Lupo, the famed longtime owner of Mary Max, looked for investments for her restaurant, she went to women who were her family and her friends. And those women invested in Margaret Lupo and in Mary Max. And of course, today, I mean, Mary Max is an Atlanta institution considered essential Atlanta dining. It's really the story of women lifting women up. I love that. Akila, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the ways that members of the Atlanta chapter of La Dame's Descoffier have impacted our city. Atlanta is composed of a bunch of small neighborhoods. Some are old. Others are new. Some of the old ones have been renewed. And part of that intentional development and expansion, some would even say gentrification, is successful due to anchor businesses. 
And historically, restaurants and eateries, even bodegas, have been those anchor businesses. So let's do a quick round of a few La Dome's Descoffier members here in Atlanta who've been anchoring the Atlanta community either for years or in recent years. That sounds like a great plan to me. I got to tell you, one of my favorites is Sarah O'Brien, owner of Little Tart and Big Softy. Uh, she really has created an incredible organization, an incredible company. And oh, those croissants. Absolutely. And she's anchoring the, uh, the Summerhill area, which has a lot of fun eateries in it. But she was one of the first to go in there and open her doors. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, another, of course, has to be Anne Quattrano, uh, founder of Bacchanalia and just one of the most incredible restaurateurs in our city. Uh, she also uh, has WH Styles Fish Cam and the departed but sorely missed Float Away Cafe, which I used to love. Um, and she really, wherever she goes, she has anchored new communities because her restaurants are just that good. Absolutely. Talk about Atlanta legend. And her Bacchanalia is now over in the Ellsworth Industrial Area. And WH Styles Fish Camp was one of the early doors opened at Pont City Market, which anytime folks come in town, I'm taking them to eat at Pont City Market. I also want to give a shout out to Deborah Von Treese. We've talked about her in previous podcasts, but she was an early entrepreneur in Blandtown with her Twisted Soul restaurant, Cookhouse House and Pours. And um, she's expanded over into Cascade Heights, which for the longest time, the only thing over there was the beautiful. Um, but now she has Orita's at the Point and La Soledad um, in Cascade Heights. Love that. And, uh, you know, another another person who I always admire because she is kind of pushing the boundaries of what we think about when we think about food experiences is Dale DeSena with Taste of Atlanta. Um, she really was one of the first to create a huge Atlanta food um, tasting event, and it's been very successful and so much fun, too. Absolutely. And because of her success with Taste of Atlanta, there's all these other tastes of that have spawned off in Atlanta's surrounding uh, suburbs and cities. So that's been a great concept. And I'm really happy that Dale was at the forefront of elevating tasting experiences here in Atlanta. I also want to give a shout out to Mary Moore. She's the founder and CEO of the Cook's Warehouse. Um, that business has expanded and contracted, but has always provided top of the line cooking, um, everything from utensils to cooking experiences, cooking classes for people in Atlanta who wanted to embrace their chef side. Um, anytime you need anything <laughs> equipment wise, um, Mary Moore's The Cook's Warehouse has been the place to go and always on my Christmas list. I, I agree. I just think I love going over there and just wandering around, meandering. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just ooing and awing and building my wish list. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I already have too many pots and pans, by the way. So it's never a good thing when I go over there. You know, another quick note is 
we have so many influential women who act as policymakers and they've really advocated um, and created philanthropic organizations and going back to really the roots of what we were discussing, which is women creating a community and using food to create a community. Uh, and one of those people is uh, of course, Naomi Green and Wendy Bohannon with the Giving Kitchen. Uh, such mm -hmm. an incredible organization that contributes uh, to restaurant workers. And the food is great, too. I mean, it's just an all-around win-win at the Giving Kitchen. And while we're out and about, if you are enjoying your Sunday brunch cocktail, among many people you should thank is Karen Brenner at the Georgia Restaurant Association because they stomped hard to expand our brunch liquor hours. Here, here. <laughs> loves her brunches. <laughs> uh, don't we all? That Those mimosas, <laughs> those are so nice. Yes, definitely. And then we have advocates like Holly Shute at Georgia Grown and Alice Rolls at Georgia Organics, who've really made a big impact on the agricultural side and connecting our farmers with our restaurants and our farmers with other institutions. So I wanted to give them a shout out as well. I love that. Anybody else who you could think of who just really you feel is doing an amazing job in in creating the future of our restaurant industry. Absolutely. Within La Dame's Descoffier's Atlanta chapter, we have culinary educators and they, to me, have a very special place in my heart because this is the future of culinary and hospitality. So Carolyn Fudd and Gay Anderson have been teaching uh, the next generation, as well as K.O. Gaden over in DeKalb County Schools and Denise Rogers. Um, and even at the collegiate level, we have Dr. Debbie Cannon over at Georgia State University. You know, talking about all these folks, both historic and modern, it is clear to me that Atlanta owes a lot of its culinary heritage and richness to the women who have and continue to hold it down in the food business. And so many of these businesses are individually owned and operated, hiring within our communities and continuing to give back to our city. So I want to encourage our listeners, not just during Women's History Month, but whenever you're dining out, to dig a little bit deeper and discover the independently owned and operated eateries. Support women and minority-owned businesses so that we can keep this unique and diverse food culture in Atlanta alive and well. Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell our contributors for Atlanta's Savory Stories. You can find more information about the women-owned restaurants and organizations on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series highlighting local comedians. Speaking of comedy... Today features Angel Contreras. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Time now for our series Speaking of Comedy. 
where local comedians share their inspiration and stories from the small stage. My name is Angel Contreras, and I'm an Atlanta-based comedian. I've been into stand-up comedy as a fan for as long as I can remember. I grew up watching stand-up with my dad. We would watch Late Night together, and we'd watch shows like Last Comic Standing or Que Locos, which was a bilingual Spanish stand-up comedy show. Once I was in my 20s, I had a friend who wanted to try stand-up for a work competition called Laugh Your Ads Off. She worked for an advertising agency, and different local advertising agencies were having employees compete against each other to see who was the funniest. So I went as moral support, and I went with her to an open mic to practice as moral support, and ended up falling in love with it. At the time, I had just graduated law school and was looking for a job as an attorney, and I had kind of realized that I'd wished I had picked a more creative career. I was a little worried about having to leave fun behind and go be this serious attorney, and getting to go do an open mic and make jokes about my life felt like a way to lighten that up for me. It felt like a way to still be able to be creative and to perform and have fun at night whenever I wasn't in court. There are so many challenges getting into stand-up comedy, especially as a woman, but the biggest challenge that I've faced thus far is just trying to balance my career with pursuing stand-up. You know, a lot of comics are able to spend their days writing their jokes and honing their craft and perfecting it and then going out and performing those jokes at night. Whereas when I wake up, I have to focus first thing on my cases and on my clients. And I have to spend the majority of my day trying my best to do good work in that arena. And then at 5 p.m. I switch my brain from work mode into comedy mode. And I've got to prepare pretty quickly for shows within a couple of hours usually, go perform and then go to bed, wake up and go back to work and do it all over again. It can be a little bit exhausting, but I do also know that I'm really lucky to have a dependable day job. Being an Atlanta comedian is just so much fun. It can be a little bit intimidating sometimes because there's so many great comedians in Atlanta. There's so much talent in this city, but it's awesome to be able to share the stage with all of them. It's also just fun being a comedian because it's nice to be surrounded by funny people. I remember before I started doing stand-up comedy, like back in 2016, I would log in to like my social media pages and I would just see people sharing the most pessimistic stuff, hurling insults at each other and just not being funny. <laughs> and I, after starting stand-up, now I log into my Facebook and whatever's going on for the day, I just see people making fun of it and making light of it and laughing. And it's just nice. It's nice to be surrounded by laughter. So I'm the worst kind of Latina. I don't speak Spanish fluently. I just lie about it on my resume. <laughs> Which was hard for me growing up because my grandparents used to watch me a lot and they only speak Spanish. So to try to communicate with them, I would just speak English at them, but in a Spanish accent. <laughs> if I'm being honest, more of like a cholo accent, I'd go up to my grandma and I'd be like, hey grandma, <laughs> oye, grandma. Estoy hungry. Yo quiero Taco Bell. Just doing like the worst impression of her at her. I did eventually learn some things though. The things that were repeated at me stuck. Like one thing my mom used to say a lot was, mijita, la carne de vaca 
no es transparente. And what that means is the meat of a cow isn't see-through. I used to stand in front of the TV a lot as a child. And Madre was me. But I lost the weight. Kept the body dysmorphia. Growing up as a Mexican-American, especially a first-generation American, I've always harbored a little bit of shame about not being able to speak Spanish fluently. And as a comic, sometimes I'm booked on shows and marketed or advertised as a Latina comic, or it'll be like Spanish language comedy night. And I'll show up feeling like I don't meet their expectations or like I'm not Mexican enough or I'm not what I'm supposed to be. And so this joke was a way for me to sort of explain to audiences right off the bat who I am, why I am the way I am. And it's been really healing. I've had people of all different backgrounds who are first generation come up to me after shows and explain to me that they've done the same thing to their grandparents. As far as my comedic voice, I do feel like I'm still finding it, but I've definitely been inspired by tons of famous comics, a lot of our local comedians here in Atlanta. But I think the main thing that's inspired my comedic voice is just my life experience thus far. When I first started doing stand-up comedy, I hate to say it, but I was in sort of a quarter-life crisis. I had just finished law school. I was looking for work and kind of finding that I didn't really want to be a lawyer anymore and didn't really know what I wanted to do with myself and was feeling a little bit lost and at points hopeless. And there was a lot going on in the world politically uh, and whatnot. I was finding myself having a lot of really strong opinions and really strong emotions. And I wanted to find a way to sort that out within myself to feel a little less scared about the future. And the way that I found to do that was to try to write jokes, um, to try to voice and express these feelings and opinions and emotions in a way that was funny and therefore easier to sit with. My favorite venues to perform at are breweries because they pay us in beer. I'm just kidding. There's so many great places in Atlanta to perform at. Uh, there's the Laughing Skull Lounge in Midtown. There's the Punchline in Buckhead. But my actual favorite venue to perform at is Star Community Bar in Little Five Points. Uh, at Star Bar is a dive bar in Little Five Points that hosts a lot of concerts. But on Monday nights, they have a comedy night. And it's a very well-regarded show within the comedy community. And I know that so many great comedians have graced that stage. And so when I started, one of my goals was just to be able to get booked on that show. For a couple of years, I would go and hang out in the back and just try to introduce myself to the host. And eventually I did get booked. And now I get booked there quite regularly and it feels like a little dream come true. Atlanta comedian Angel Contreras. More information on her work as well as our entire Speaking Of series, is on our website, wabe.org slash speakingof. During Women's History Month, the Black Art in America Gallery is hosting two collective art shows honoring black women who have dedicated their lives to black culture. Her voice sings, and if only the patchwork could talk, 
feature paintings, mixed media, textiles, sculptures, and quilts by established and emerging artists. The exhibit, If Only Patchwork Could Talk, by local creator Marvell Michelle, features 20 women who've survived heart-related diseases. Michelle intertwined their healing journeys with words and images presented in a 92 by 96 inch quilt that also includes audio. Here is Winter Bell, the youngest artist featured in Her Voice Sings. The most interesting thing in the show is the nine foot quilt. And what's special about this quilt, it's, it's huge, but it also, it tells the story of over 20 women who have survived difficult heart problems. You know what I mean? Heart attacks, strokes. And then it's even more important when you look at the dark history of black people and our healthcare system. So just seeing their testimonies and seeing it put in such an artistic way, it's really beautiful. It's really great. Her voice sings is on view at Black Art in America through March 18th. And if the Patchwork Could Talk show runs through March 25th, more information is available on blackartinamerica.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Rialto's upcoming Johnny Mercer tribute show, plus a look at the new adult Pinocchio production at Seven Stages Theater, and author Deshaun Charles Winslow tells us about his new mystery novel, Decent People. City Light senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts.